Book Four, Chapter Five of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Five, Deucalion and Proserpina. 1877 to 1879. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. In the summer of 1875, Ruskin had written, I begin to ask myself, with somewhat pressing arithmetic, how much time is likely to be left me, at the age of 56, to complete the various designs for which, until past 50, I was merely collecting material. Of these materials, I have now enough by me for a most interesting, in my own opinion, History of 15th Century Florentine Art, in six octavo volumes, an analysis of the Attic Art of the 5th Century BC in three volumes, an exhaustive history of Northern 13th Century Art in ten volumes, a life of Sir Walter Scott, with analysis of modern epic art in seven volumes, a life of Xenophon, with analysis of the general principles of education in ten volumes, a commentary on Hesiod, with final analysis of the principles of political economy, in nine volumes, and a general description of the geology and botany of the Alps in twenty-four volumes. The estimation of volumes was, perhaps, in jest, but the plans for harvesting his material were in earnest. Proserpina, so named from the flora of the Greeks, the daughter of Demeter, Mother Earth, grew out of notes already begun in 1866. It was a little like an ordinary botany book, that was to be expected. It did not dissect plants, it did not give chemical or historical analysis, but with bright and curious fancy, with the most ingenious diagrams and perfect drawings, beautifully engraved by Burgess and Allen, illustrated the mystery of growth in plants and the tender beauty of their form. Though this was not science, in strict terms it was a field of work which no one but Ruskin had cultivated. He was helped by a few scientific men like Professor Oliver, who saw a value in his line of thought and showed a kindly interest in it. Deucalion, from the mythical creator of human life out of stones, was begun as a companion work, to be published in parts as the repertory of Oxford lectures on alpine form and notes on all kinds of kindred subjects. For instance, before that hasty journey to Sheffield he gave a lecture at the London Institution on precious stones, February the 17th, repeated March the 28th, 1876. A lecture on a similar subject was given to the boys of Christ's Hospital on April the 15th. This lecture, called The Iris of the Earth, stood first in part three of the Deucalion, and the work went on in studies of the forms of silica on the lines marked out ten years before in the papers on banded and brachiated concretions now carried forward with much kind help from the Reverend J. Clifton Ward of the Geographical Survey and Mr. Henry Willett, F.G.S. of Brighton. On the way home over the Simplon in May and June 1877, travelling first with Signor Alessandri and then with Mr. G. Allen, Professor Ruskin continued his studies of alpine flowers for Proserpina. In the autumn he gave a lecture at Kendal, October the 1st, repeated at Eton College, December the 8th, on Udale and its streamlets. Udale, reprinted as part five of Deucalion, took an unusual importance in his own mind, 
not only because it was a great success as a lecture, though some Kendallians complained that there was not enough information in it, but because it was the first given since that Christmas at Venice when a new insight had been granted him, as he felt, into spiritual things, and a new burden laid on him, to withstand the rash conclusions of science falsely so-called, and to preach in their place the presence of God in nature and in man. Writing to Mrs. Beaver about his Oxford course of that autumn, readings in modern painters, he said, on the 2nd of December, I gave yesterday the twelfth and last of my course of lectures this term, to a room crowded by six hundred people, two-thirds members of the university, and with its door wedged open by those who could not get in. This interest of theirs being granted to me, I doubt not, because for the first time in Oxford I have been able to speak to them boldly of immortal life. I intended, when I began the course, only to have read modern painters to them. But when I began, some of your favourite bits interested the men so much, and brought so much larger a proportion of undergraduates than usual, that I took pains to reinforce and press them home. And people say I have never given so useful a course yet, but it has taken all my time and strength. He wrote again on December the 16th from Herne Hill. It is a long while since I have felt so good for nothing as I do this morning. My very wristbands curl up in a dog's-eared and disconsolate manner. My little room is all a heap of disorder. I have got hoarseness and wheezing and sneezing and coughing and choking. I can't speak and I can't think. I am miserable in bed and useless out of it. And it seems to me as if I could never venture to open a window or go out of a door any more. I have the dimmest sort of diabolical pleasure in thinking how miserable I shall make Susie by telling her all this. But in other respects, I seem entirely devoid of all moral sentiments. I have arrived at this state of things, first by catching cold, and since trying to amuse myself for three days. He goes on to give a list of his amusements. Pickwick, chivalric romances, the Daily Telegraph, Staunton's games of chess, and finally analysis of the dock company's bill of charges on a box from Venice. Ten days after he wrote from Oxford, in his whimsical style, Yesterday I had two lovely services in my own cathedral. You know the Cathedral of Oxford is the chapel of Christ Church College, and I have my high seat in the chancel as an honorary student, besides being bred there, and so one is ever so proud and ever so pious all at once, which is ever so nice to know. And my own dean that's the dean of Christchurch, who is as big as any bishop, read the services, and the psalms and anthems were lovely. And then I dined with Henry Ackland and his family, but I do wish I could be at Brantwood too. Next day it was cold quite gone. But he was not to be quit so easily this time of the results of overwork and worry. He had been passing through the unpleasant experience of a misunderstanding with one of his most trusted friends and helpers, his work on behalf of the St. George's Guild had been energetic and sincere, and he had received the support of a number of strangers, among whom were people of reasonable station and position. But he was surprised to find that many of his personal friends held aloof. He was still more surprised to learn, on returning from Venice, full of new hope and strong convictions in his mission, that the caution of one upon whom he had counted as a firm ally had dissuaded an intending adherent from joining in the work. A man of the world, accustomed to overreach and to be overreached, would have taken the discovery coolly and accepted an explanation. But Ruskin was never a man of the world, 
and now much less than ever. He took it as treason to the great work of which he felt himself to be the missionary. Throughout the autumn and winter the discovery rankled and preyed on his mind. As for the sake of absolute candour, he had published in fours everything that related to the guild work. Even his own private affairs and confessions, whatever they risked, he felt that this too must out, in order that his supporters might judge of his conduct and that nothing affecting the enterprise might be kept back. And so, at Christmas, he sent the correspondence to his printers. Years afterwards, by the intervention of friends, this breach was healed. But what suffering it cost can be learnt from the sequel. To Ruskin, it was the beginning of the end. His Aberdeen correspondence asked just then for the usual Christmas message to the Bible class, and instead of the cheery words of bygone years, received the couplet from Horace. Inter spem caramque, timore inter et eras, omnem cride diem tibi delixisse supremum. Amid hope and sorrow, amid fear and wrath, believe every day that has dawned on thee to be thy last. From Oxford, early in January 1878, he went on a visit to Windsor Castle, whence he wrote, I came to see Prince Leopold, who has been a prisoner to his sofa lately, but I trust he is better. He is very bright and gentle under severe and almost continual pain. No less gentle, in spite of the severe justice he was inflicting upon himself even more than upon his friend, was the author of the fours. As the letters of the time to his invalid neighbour in Hortus Inclusus show, how ready to own himself in the wrong, at that very moment when he was being pointed at as the most obstinate and egotistic of men, how placable he really was and open to rebuke he showed when, from Windsor, he went to Howarden. Nearly three years before he had written roughly of Mr Gladstone. As a Conservative, he was not predisposed in favour of the leader of the party to whom he attributed most of the evils he was combating. Mr Gladstone and he had often met and by no means agreed together in conversation. But this visit convinced him that he had misjudged Mr Gladstone, and he promptly made the fullest apology in the current number of fours, saying that he had written under a complete misconception of his character. In reprinting the old pages, he not only cancelled the offending message, but he left the place blank, with a note in the middle of it, as a memorial of rash judgment. He went slowly northward, seeking rest at Ingleton, whence he wrote January the 17th, I've got nothing done all the time I've been away but a few mathematical figures, crystallography no doubt, for Deucalion, and the less I do, the less I find I can do it. And yesterday, for the first time these twenty years, I hadn't so much as a plan in my head all day. Arrived at Brantwood, as rest was useless, he tried work. Mr Willett had asked him to reprint the two paths, and he got that ready for press, and wrote a short preface. At Venice, Mr. J. R. Anderson had been working out for him the myths illustrated by Carpaccio in the chapel of St. Giorgio de Schiavoni, and the book had been waiting for Ruskin's introduction until he was surprised by the publication of an almost identical inquiry by M. Clermont Ganon. He tried to fulfil his duty to his pupil by writing the preface immediately, most sorrowfully feeling the inadequacy of his strength for the tasks he had laid upon it. He wrote, my own feeling, now, is that everything which has hitherto happened to me, and been done by me, whether well or ill, 
has been fitting me to take greater fortune more prudently, and to do better work more thoroughly. And just when I seem to be coming out of school, very sorry to have been such a foolish boy, yet have taken a prize or two, and expecting now to enter upon some more serious business than cricket, I am dismissed by the master I hoped to serve, with a, that's all I want of you, sir. In such times he found relief by reverting to the past. He wrote in the beginning of February a paper for the university magazine on my first editor, W. H. Harrison, and forgot himself, almost, in bright reminiscences of youthful days and early associations. Next, as Mr. Marcus Huish, who had shown great friendliness and generosity in providing prints for the Sheffield Museum, was now proposing to hold an exhibition of Mr. Ruskin's Turners at the Fine Arts Galleries in New Bond Street. It was necessary to arrange the exhibits and to prepare the catalogue. For the next fortnight he struggled on with this labour and with his last fours, the last he was to write in the long series of more than seven years. How little the thousands who read the preface to his catalogue, with its sad sketch of Turner's fate, and what they supposed to be its customary burst of terminal eloquence, understood that it was indeed the cry of one who had been wounded in the house of his friends, and was now believing every day that dawned on him to be his last. He told of Turner's youthful picture of the Coniston Fells, and its invocation to the mists of morning, bidding them, in honour to the world's great author, rise. And then how Turner's health, and with it in great degree his mind, failed suddenly with a snap of some vital cord, after the sunset splendours of his last dazzling efforts. Morning breaks, as I write, along those Coniston fells, and the level mists, motionless and grey beneath the rows of the moorlands, veil the lower woods and the sleeping village, and the long lawns by the lake shore. Oh, that someone had but told me, in my youth, when all my heart seemed to be set on these colours and clouds, that appear for a while and then vanish away, how little my love of them would serve me, when the silence of lawn and wood in the dews of morning should be completed, and all my thoughts should be those of whom, by neither, I was to meet more. Catalogue was finished and hurried off to the printers. A week of agitating suspense at home, and then it could no longer be concealed. Friends and foes alike were startled and saddened with the news of his sudden and dangerous illness, some form of inflammation of the brain, the result of overwork, but still more immediately of the emotional strain from which he had been suffering. On March the 4th, the Turner exhibition opened, and day by day the bulletins from Brantwood announcing his condition were read by multitudes of visitors with eager and sorrowful interest. Newspapers all the world over copied the daily reports. In the far west of America the same telegrams were posted, and they say even a more demonstrative sympathy was shown. Nor was the feeling confined to the English-speaking public. The Oxford Proctor, in convocation of April 24th, when the patient, after the first burst of the storm was slowly drifting back into calmer waters, thought it worth while, in the course of his speech, to mention that in Italy, where he had lately been on an Easter vacation tour, he had witnessed a widespread anxiety about Ruskin, and prayers put up for his recovery. By May the 10th he was so much better that he could complete the catalogue with some gossip about those alpine drawings of 1842, which he regarded as the climax of Turner's work. The first, and best in some ways, of the series was the Splugen. Without any word to him, 
the diligence of kind friends and the help of a wide circle of admirers traced the drawing and subscribed its price, one thousand guineas, to which Mr. Agnew generously added his commission, and it was presented to Mr. Ruskin as a token of sympathy and respect. He was not insensible to the personal compliment implied, and by way of some answer he spent the first few days of his convalescence in arranging and annotating a series of drawings by himself and engravings, illustrating the Turners, to add to his show during the remainder of the season. When they were sent off, early in June, to Bond Street, he left home with the Sevens to complete his recovery at Malham. There was another reason why that spontaneous testimonial was welcome at the moment, for a curious and unaccustomed ordeal was impending for his claims as an art critic. On his return from Venice, after months of intercourse with the great old masters, he found the Grosvenor Gallery just opened for the first time, with its memorable exhibition of the different extra-academical schools. Placed before the public, in sharp contrast, the final outcome of the pre-Raphaelitism for which he had fought many a year before, and samples of the last new fashion from Paris. The maturer works of Burne-Jones had been practically unseen by the public, and Ruskin took the opportunity of their exhibition to write his praise of the youngest of the old masters in the current number of fours, and afterwards in two papers on the three colours of pre-Raphaelitism. 19th Century Magazine, November and December, 1878 but in the same force he dismissed with half a paragraph of contempt Mr. Whistler's eccentric sketch of fireworks at Cremorne, long before, in 1863, when he was working with various artists connected with the pre-Raphaelite circle, Mr. Whistler had made overtures to the great critic through Mr. Swinburne the poet, but he had not been taken seriously. Now he had become the missionary in England of the new French gospel of Impressionism, which to Ruskin was one of those half-truths which are ever the worst of heresies. Mr. Whistler appealed to the law. He brought an action for libel, which was tried on November the 25th and 26th before Baron Huddleston, and recovered a farthing damages. Ruskin's costs, amounting to £386, 12 shillings and fourpence, were paid by a public subscription to which 120 persons, including many strangers, contributed. By that time he was fully recovering from his illness, back at Coniston, after a short visit to Liverpool. It was forbidden to him to attempt any exciting work. He had given up fours and Oxford lecturing, and was devoting himself again to quiet studies for Proserpina and Deucalion. On the first day of the trial, the St. George's Guild was registered as a company. On the second day, he wrote to Miss Beaver. I have entirely resigned all hope of ever thanking you rightly for bread, sweet odours, roses and pearls, and must just allow myself to be fed, scented, rose-garlanded, and be pearled, as if I were a poor little pet dog or pet pig. But my cold is better, and I am getting on with this botany. But it is really too important a work to be pushed for a week or fortnight. Early in 1879, his resignation of the Slade Professorship was announced, followed by what was virtually his election to an honorary doctor's degree, or as officially worded, the Hebdomadal Council resolved on June ninth, 1879, to propose to convocation to confer the degree of DCL Honoris Causa upon John Ruskin, M.A. of Christchurch, at the Enkenia of that year. But the proposal, though notified in the Gazette of June tenth, was not submitted to vote owing to the inability of Mr. Ruskin to be present at the Enkenia, 
the degree was conferred in his absence in 1893. End of Book 4, Chapter 5 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith